The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, this morning, I want to look at um, really what what is Easter. Answer the question: What is Easter really all about? I don't know about you, but for me, I get the cross. Uh, the cross just makes sense to me that we sin, and somehow that sin has to be paid for, and Jesus did that on the cross. Uh, but for and, and the scripture is full of tons of, of references pointing to that. A good chunk of the Gospels is leading up to that event, and many chapters in the Gospel are devoted and dedicated to explaining and describing all that happened on the cross. The resurrection, on the other hand, is is almost a, a byline, right? It's briefly described, and its meaning and significance oftentimes just goes right by me. Uh, maybe you don't have that problem, but I do. What is the, what is the significance? What is the meaning of the resurrection? Uh, to highlight this kind of as a universal trend, in fact, it's a growing trend in the West, um, more and more people are even doubting and confused about what Easter is. Uh, Gallup poll recently surveyed Americans. Sorry for those who aren't Americans. You would have answered differently, I'm sure. But among Americans, 67% of all Americans, not just religious people, 67% of Americans describe Easter as a religious holiday. Sounds promising. However, only 42% of Americans identify the resurrection as part of Easter. Okay, so less than half would say that the, the point of Easter is the resurrection of Christ. That, that's discouraging, but this is even, it gets even worse. Among religious people, among Christians, only 2% would say that the main point of Easter is the resurrection. And you're all sitting here. Two percent. Okay, so it's not a very encouraging statistic, right, that so few would see the resurrection as the main point of what we celebrate at Easter. Um, And and there's growing trends among so-called religious Christian people who would say things like this. Uh, This comes from the uh, professor at New York University says this. The miracle of a bodily resurrection is something I reject without moving away from its basic idea. Okay. So I don't believe in the resurrection. I just believe in the idea of the resurrection. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, what I mean is that we can reach the lowest point in our lives of going deep into that place that feels like death. In other words, having a really bad day. And then find our way out again. That's the story of the resurrection. And at Easter, this is expressed in community and at its best through the compassion of others. So more and more, Easter, the resurrection, means you can have a really bad day, you can be depressed and feel like you want to die, but presto, the next day you can be resurrected. Right? And more and more, the, the, the resurrection of Christ is being reduced not to a literal, genuine bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but it's being spiritualized. Uh, Jesus didn't really die. He just, you know, it's just the spirit of it, you know. We just celebrated Easter, the spirit of life-ish kind of thing, right? 
Well, more and more, that's the, that's the trend. Right? Well, uh, why is it people don't believe in the resurrection? What is it that is about the resurrection that is so hard for people to grab hold of? And of course, the initial thought would be, well, it's kind of out there. In my lifetime, you know, I just haven't seen a lot of people coming back to life. Um, it's, it is a stretch for most of us, and most of us who live in a very scientific world know that it just doesn't happen. Your heart starts beating, you stop breathing, a couple days go by, you're just not mostly dead anymore. You're all dead, and there's no hope, right? There's no hope. You're, you're gone. So there's a sense in which uh, perhaps people don't believe it because it's, it's kind of hard to believe. But I don't think that's really why people don't believe in the resurrection. Because the, the, the truth is, people, especially in the West, re- believe all kinds of ridiculous, nonsensical things. Uh, for example, it's crazy how many people believe in UFOs. And not only believe in UFOs, but believe they've actually been abducted by aliens. Right? And they have no problem with that, right? Um, even worse, here's an even worse one. There right now is a growing trend in, uh, in the West among especially young people who believe zombies are for real, right? Serious. And, and, and here's, so here's the deal. In, in the 1980s, a scientist, scientist, like all of you scientists, uh, named Wade Davis, claimed to have found a powder that could create zombies, thus providing scientific basis for zombie stories. Okay, Davis didn't believe in voodoo magic, but he did believe that he found something that could poison victims into zombie-like state, a powerful neurotoxin called tetra-something or other, which can be found in several animals, including pufferfish. He claimed to have infiltrated the secret society and obtained samples of the zombie-making powder. Right? Okay, so people believe in zombies. They can't believe in the resurrection, Right? I think there's more to it than just that it's hard to believe because people will believe all kind of nutcase things. And they could believe the nutcase story of the resurrection. Why won't they? I think there's two, uh, well, really three reasons. Uh, First of all, there is a fierce determination to keep all religions on an equal plane, an equal playing field. You see, as long as Jesus did not raise from the dead then Christianity is essentially no different from all the other religions of the world. Right? And, and you can make the claim that they're all a path to God right? uh, because they're all just the beliefs of a bunch of dead guys who've gotten passed on to us. But if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, it puts him in a whole other league. Right? It gives him a decided advantage over all the other dead guys. Because right? what dead guys can teach you is how to die well only Jesus can show you the way to overcome death, right? So there's an inherent bent against Christianity because we want Christianity to be just like all the other religions, not uniquely distinct uh, in a class by itself. Secondly, there's a fierce determination to keep God under control. Okay, we don't want a God that we cannot control. Well, how does modern man control God? Back in former times, they controlled God through appeasing the gods through sacrifices, but in the modern world, we don't do it that way anymore. We have brought God under control uh, by subjecting him to the laws of nature. Right? There's an assumption among modern people that says God has to play by the same rules that we do. 
right? We live by gravity. God must live by gravity. We live according to the uh, physical laws of the universe. God must also live according to those laws. God does not have the freedom or right to do anything outside of the physical laws of the universe. And so by doing that, we can control God because we now have been able to control those physical laws. We can manipulate creation to do what we want it to. And therefore, we can make God do what we want him to, right? So if Jesus rose from the dead, okay, that's just breaking all the laws of the physical universe. Okay, that's a God who's out of control. Thirdly, um, there's a fierce determination to never have to answer to God, right? If Jesus rose from the dead and he promises that there's life after the grave, that people will come back to life, they will be resurrected, they will stand before God, then it means you and I will each have to give an account before God of our life. And nobody wants to do that. As long as there's no resurrection, as long as there's no uh, life before or after the grave, then there's no threat that I have to give an answer for how I've lived before the grave. So for those reasons, and perhaps others, the, re- uh, the resurrection of Christ is under attack. Uh, so this morning, I would love to prove conclusively that Jesus rose from the dead. I cannot do that, right? Uh, and I'm not going to try. The good news is there's no one who can prove the opposite. Right? There's nobody out there who can prove conclusively that Jesus did not uh, rise from the dead. But what I do want to do is this. I want to show uh, that the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the only possible option in order for Christianity to be true. Right? In other words, either the, re- either the resurrection is true or else all of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, and all of Christianity is a lie. Right? So what I want to show is that we're either all really stupid people or we're really correct in understanding truth. Everything we believe about Jesus depends on the confirmation of the resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then nothing he claimed about himself can be true. So it's extremely important that we understand and believe and uphold the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's look at, uh, at, at Peter's sermon as he makes his case before the people of Israel. Uh, He starts off by this. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because, and get this, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. First point is this. It is impossible for Jesus to stay dead. Okay? It is impossible for Jesus to stay dead. Okay? It was not impossible for him to die, but it was impossible for him to stay dead. Let's see why. Uh, first off, Uh, Peter is actually not arguing here for the resurrection. He's actually arguing here for the truth that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one. Um, And his argument goes like this. 
Uh, if Jesus was truly the Messiah, which he's claiming he was, then it's absolutely essential that he rise from the dead. Um, now, if Jesus was just a great teacher or a profound leader, the resurrection was not necessary. But if he truly was the Messiah, then anything uh, other than the resurrection would be impossible for him. Uh, one way to illustrate it would be this. In John chapter 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Okay? He claimed that he was not just not that he could resurrect people. He said, I am. I am in my being and all that I am. I am the resurrection and life itself. Right? Uh, now, when you put that out there, you get T-shirts made, printed, you know, you make posters, big ad campaign, I'm the resurrection and the life. When you die, it looks bad, right? Just that's all there is to it. Um, unless you come back to life, right? Unless you resurrect, it would undermine that claim. Uh, Peter says, look, it is impossible. If Jesus is the Messiah, it is impossible for death to keep him, right? The only way he can be Messiah is if he rose from the dead. Well, what's the basis of that claim? Well, he, he quotes scripture. And he goes back to the Old Testament and he quotes a psalm of David that says this. It says, um, God raised him up, losing the pangs of death. It was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning Jesus... I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I may, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. Hey, Peter quotes the Psalm of David, Psalm 15, uh, supporting the fact that the Messiah had to rise again. He continues on with the argument this way. He says, brothers, speaking to the Israelites, he says, look, guys, here's the deal. I can say to you with absolute confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and is still dead. Right? And he was speaking these words in Jerusalem at the temple. And just outside the temple uh, mount, mountain, the, the wall, would have been the Kidron Valley. And just over that wall would have been David's grave. David's tomb, right? If they could have looked through the wall, they probably could have seen the area where David's tomb was. And in, in Jesus' day, it was a famous site. The site you could go visit, the tomb of David. Sadly, can't do that anymore. Not because David's not still there. We just don't know where it is, right? But in, in, Jesus, in Peter's day, they knew the tomb. They said, look, David claimed that he would not be abandoned to the grave, that his flesh, his physical body, would not rot in the grave. He says, look, guys, I could take you to the grave. It's pretty well rotten, right? There's pretty much not anything left of David but bones. He's pretty much decayed, right? So David could not be talking about himself. So who was he talking about? Well, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he, that is, Jesus, would not be abandoned to the grave, nor his flesh see corruption. So Peter takes the psalm of David and said, David prophesied that his heir, his descendant, would uh, die, but God would not abandon him to the grave. His flesh would not begin to see decay. 
he would be resurrected. Uh, so the point is this. Here, as well as other Old Testament passages, is clear that the Messiah would rise again. And David says, or Peter says, quoting David, simple point is, the reason Jesus had to rise again, the reason it was impossible for death to hold him, was because he truly was the Messiah. Second point in his argument, he says, well, uh, beyond that, he says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Okay, so Old Testament pointed to it as, a, as an essential fact and reality. But secondly, he said, we've seen it. We and the disciples, the twelve and many others, saw the physical resurrected body of Christ. Uh, on numerous occasions by multiple pe- people over a period of 40-some days. And, of course, the question comes, well, how can you trust their testimony? How do we know these guys just didn't see uh, hallucinations, delusions? You know, they wanted to see Jesus so bad that they all collectively, 500 at one time, had a joint group vision of Jesus, right? Um, how do we know that's not the case? Well, first of all, uh, they didn't trust their own testimony, right? Peter didn't start with his own eyewitness. He says, you can count on this because I saw it. That's not what he says. His own witness went back where first? To the Old Testament, right? Peter didn't even judge uh, or trust his own opinion apart from the prophecies of the Old Testament. He said, I believe in the resurrection, first of all, because the Old Testament mandated it. But I'm a witness to what God has done. Secondly, we can trust their opinion because... Uh, they had a reputation both before the cross and after as honest, truthful, and upright men. Right? And all the recording, and there's a, there's a lot of written about the, the disciples about the early church from within Scripture, but also from outside of Scripture. And nobody accuses the, the apostles or the early disciples as being lunatics. Right? Nobody was trying to lock them up for being insane. Nobody was accusing them of being liars or cheaters or scam artists. Right? In fact, one of the reasons they wanted to kill him was because they were so very credible in their testimony and in their witness. So they had a good reputation as being truthful, honest, upright men. But thirdly and most importantly, we can trust their witness and their testimony because every one of them was willing to suffer and die because of what they believed. Right? They all, all 12 apostles suffered horrific deaths. Right? They were tortured and persecuted because they proclaimed this message. Now, suppose they did make it up. Suppose they all got together and conspired, came up with this great lie. We're going to create this story. Right? What would be the likelihood of them uh, being beaten and tortured, sticking to that story, every single one of them? Right? They were willing to die horrible deaths, defending the truth of the resurrection. So for those reasons and many more, we can trust their witness. So um, jumping ahead to verse 36, so Peter sums up his argument this way, and there's a little bit more to the argument we'll get back to, but Peter sums it up like this. He says, Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain, know for certain, that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
And the word that Paul uses there for know for certain is a very strong word. He says, you, you, he says, look, based on what I've argued to you, you Israelites can know this with absolute 100% conviction that it's true. Jesus is the Messiah. And he's the Messiah because he rose from the dead, as the scriptures proclaimed. And what's interesting is that when, when, when Peter finished those words, they didn't all walk away going, you know, Peter, you're just, you're just insane, right? No, it says they were cut to the heart. And they said, tell us what we must do. Right? That early crowd at Pentecost was deeply convinced that everything Peter argued was true. Um, so <clears throat> Peter was convinced his argument was airtight and solid. Uh, at this point, you may not. Okay? You may look at this argument and go, you know, I see loopholes in his argument. Um, Peter is not here proving Jesus rose from the dead, but this is what he's proving, and this is what is airtight and solid. His real point is this, that the only way Jesus could be the Messiah is if he rose from the dead. Okay, that's what they could be convinced about. Right? So he's not proving Jesus' resurrection, he's assuming it. What he is proving is that only a resurrected Jesus could be a legitimate claim as the Messiah. In other words, he's saying clearly uh, it is impossible to have a Messiah unless he rose from the dead. Right? So putting it in kind of our own context, it could be like this. You know, There's some things that are just not possible. For example, a five-year-old child in a puddle of water, it is impossible for the child to walk by and around the puddle of water. It's just impossible, right? They will always go into and through, usually hopping into with both feet. Am I right, kids? It's, it's like, it's, it's a law of nature, right? It's an impossibility to do otherwise. Like the, the old potato chip commercial, right? Uh, Lays, you can't only eat just one, right? Uh, I can testify to that fact. Could never do it, right? Even more critical for me, if there's like chocolate in the room, it is just not possible for me not to eat some, right? Right? Uh, it is not possible for the Messiah not to have risen. Uh, so the significance of the resurrection is this, that without it, there can be no such thing as Christianity. Right? Without the resurrection, Jesus is a fake. And there's nothing about him, about his claims, about what he taught, that can be trusted as true or trustworthy. So all these people wandering around out there, like I quoted some other people, I won't say bad things about them, but um, they call themselves Christians. They cannot be. They cannot be. They can have some kind of religion that's not Christianity and be all about, you know, having bad days and poof, I have good days. And hey, it's the spirit of the resurrection. Okay, that's nonsense. Okay, that is not what Christianity is. Christianity is about a Messiah who came and walked on this earth as the living God of the universe and who died and who came back to life. Right? Uh, you cannot have either the Old or the New Testament if Jesus did not rise again. To my Jewish brothers and Jewish friends who think they're holding on to the Old Testament but they can reject Christ as Messiah, you cannot. They reject their own scripture when they reject the resurrection of Jesus. Right? 
if Jesus is the Messiah, he had to rise from the dead, or he was not the Messiah. Christianity is nothing, and our faith is meaningless. If that's all true, then there are some, some significant implications that really should just rock our world. Let me give you those real briefly. First of all, uh, the resurrection is the power of the cross. Right? Uh, in, in this sermon, Peter gives the gospel. He talks about the life of Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And the core of that are those two truths, that Jesus died, that he rose again. Um, why did Jesus die? Well, we know he died uh, by God's purpose, by God's plan and God's will, in order to be the sacrifice for our sin, right? To be the atonement for our sin. Uh, so that, as it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That whosoever believes in his sacrifice should, should not perish. Um, but this, this, this life, this sacrifice, can only have significance, can only have um, power if it is a sufficient sacrifice. What is a sufficient sacrifice for sin? Uh, in the Old Testament, they would offer a perfect animal. Okay, an animal, a sheep or a lamb or a bull that was without any defect. Was that a sufficient sacrifice for sin? Well, the life of the animal had value, but it could never have value equal to that as somebody created uniquely in God's image. So for that reason, God says over and over again in the Old Testament, I'm tired of your sacrifices. I don't need your sacrifices. Ultimately, they are inadequate and insufficient to cover your sin. Uh, so it needs to be then a human sacrifice. But who would be fit as a human sacrifice? Well, it would take a person who was blameless, spotless, perfect, holy. Right? If, a, if a person has even one speck of sin in their life, they would need to be sanctified. They would need somebody to sacrifice for them first to make them good enough to be sufficient for a sacrifice for another. Right? So first of all, it has to be a human who is perfect. Certainly Jesus meets that condition. But not only does he have to be perfect, um, in truth, if you had one perfect human being, they could die and exchange their life for one other human being, um, their life for the other. But uh, the, 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 re the sacrifice that was required was not just for one, but for all humanity. What kind of sacrifice would be sufficient to die for all humanity? It would have to be a human who is perfect and who is infinite. Right? Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, God incarnate, uh, is those things. He's man. He's spotless, perfect. He is infinite God. The only way his sacrifice could be sufficient is if he was all three of those things. How do we know he was all three of those things? Well, it's confirmed through the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, we have no evidence or proof that he was the Messiah. We have no evidence or proof that he was all three of those things. Right? So through the cross, I mean through the resurrection, is the power of the cross. It validates and affirms its power to forgive us of sin. Uh, next implication 
The resurrection is Jesus' right to rule. In verse 32 again, it says, This Jesus God raised up, and that of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he says, uh, to him, uh, he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Uh, What does all that mean? Well, it means this, that because Jesus is Messiah, because it's proven through the resurrection, Messiah is the king, and he has the right to rule. And and Peter says he rose, he's now exalted at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is the place of supreme authority and rule. It's the place, uh, the highest position of authority in the land, and in this case, in all of heaven and earth. Uh, Because Jesus rose again, because he's Messiah, he has the right to rule. What does that have to do with us? Well, it has this to do, a great benefit for us. It says that because he has this right to rule, that he's received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he has poured this out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Because we know this sermon took place at Pentecost. They had just seen the Holy Spirit fall down uh, on the believers, and they were speaking in every kind of language, and people understood, regardless of their language, what was being said. They were witnessing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The implication is this, that Jesus, as ruler of the universe, has the right and power and authority to give us the Spirit of God. Um, If Jesus rose from the dead, the fact is every single one of us who believe and follow him are indwelt by the very presence of God in his spirit. Um, That in itself is uh, both a result and a witness to the resurrection. So what does that mean? Well, it means that uh, the Holy Spirit comes into our life as a radically life-transforming power. Right? So no matter how much you try to be a good person, without the Holy Spirit, you will have minimal success. The disciples are a great example of this. They spent three years with Jesus. And as we're going through the book of Luke, we're seeing their journey. How did it go for them? Well, honestly, not that well, right? Uh, they, they, they were committed to Christ. They were serious about following Christ. But did they really get what Jesus was teaching? No. Not until the resurrection and not until Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out and their life was radically transformed by the presence of God. Um, They were proud and selfish men until the Holy Spirit invaded their life and they were radically transformed. That is a proof or evidence of the Holy Spirit. What is the proof or evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? What is it about your life before Christ that you could never change, that God has changed by his power? I know for me there are countless things. I could go on all morning, but I'll I'll give you just one quick example uh, because this is one of the most dramatic in my life. Before I came to Christ, I had a violent temper and a very short fuse. And uh, just about everything I had of value and worth, at some point I got angry and broke, right? Things I bought with my own money. How stupid was that? Remember, I saved up for 
a long, long time to buy this cool race car set. And one day I got so angry, I just busted the whole thing into a thousand pieces. <laughs> Stupid, right? I could not change that. I could not control that. But when I came to Christ, the Holy Spirit radically changed that part of my life. Uh, not that I couldn't get angry, but that over-the-top, violent temper was just gone from me. That's proof of the resurrection, because it's through the resurrection that we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, th- there are other, other proofs and other th- implications of the resurrection, but let me just close with, with our response. Right? Peter lays it out plain and simple. If Jesus is the Messiah, he had to rise from the dead. If he rose from the dead, the cross has power to forgive us, to save us. Uh, Jesus has the power and authority to pour out his Holy Spirit on our life, to radically transform our life through his power. So if all that is true, what is the significance for us? How do we respond to that? Well, in this passage, it gives a couple clear things that we should do in response to the resurrection. First of all, he says in verse 37, when they heard this, the the Israelites, those listening, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of his apostles, brothers, what should we do? In other words, how should we respond? How do we respond to this truth? If Jesus truly uh, was the one we killed, if he was Messiah, if he rose again. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. First thing, we are to repent and be baptized in the name of Christ. If Jesus is Messiah, if his resurrection is real, if his cross truly has power, then our only response, our only legitimate, valid response to that is to repent of sin. Simply put, repentance is turning your life away from evil, away from self, away from pride, away from wickedness, and to seek and turn and go after God. He says, if Jesus is the Messiah, you need to turn away from who you were and you need to start seeking this Messiah. You need to go after him. And as a sign of that, you need to be baptized in his name. Okay, baptism is an outward sign or evidence of the inward faith that you are trusting that Jesus is Messiah, that his cross has power and that he died for you. Uh, The result of that, he says, is that you will be forgiven of all your sins. Um, The power of the cross is effective to wash us clean. So it means that we should be daily, I believe daily, uh, repenting, daily confessing sin, daily turning away from the sinfulness of our own heart and life, and finding grace and forgiveness in Christ. Um, Is there a sin in your life 
Is there something in your life that just continues to condemn you? That continues to control you? That continues to have power and influence in your life? The power of the resurrection is the power to overcome and be set free from that sin. What is it today in your life that either torments you with guilt and condemnation or controls your life with its grip on you? Jesus, uh, Peter says, if you believe Jesus, if you believe the resurrection, repent of those things. Turn to Christ. Receive his forgiveness daily. You say, yeah, but I did that yesterday. Well, do it again today. You know, and guess what? You're going to need to do it again tomorrow. There's no time limit on the effectiveness of his forgiveness. Right? As long and as many times as you repent and turn back to him and seek his forgiveness, he extends it. It's the power of the cross. The other benefit, we're forgiven, but the other great benefit, it says that we are to receive, it says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's an incredible truth, and it is both, as I said, a proof, an evidence, and a witness to the resurrection, as well as a result of the resurrection. We are guaranteed God's presence. Right? That's what His Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is nothing less and nothing more than the full presence of God. Throughout the whole of the Old Testament, God's purpose and mission over and over, He says, I want to live with Israel. I want to come down and I want to be in your midst. I want to do life with you guys. But I can't because you're so sinful. I will destroy you. But in Christ, God finally gets what he wants. He now has poured out his presence among us and he lives at our side. The glory of the resurrection is this. We serve a God who is alive. We follow a Jesus who is living and who's not living gazillion light years away, who through his spirit is living with us. That's the coolest thing of the resurrection. It is about God's presence with us here and now. Uh, let me go back and just close with this, reading again this, this psalm, right? The psalm that, that, that Peter quotes of David. And uh, Peter quotes it, obviously, to support Jesus' resurrection, Uh, But one of the perplexing things about Old Testament prophecy is the things that they prophesied about had meaning for them too. Okay, it's not only about Jesus, but it also had comfort for David himself. Uh, It could not be perfectly fulfilled in David because he did die, his body did decay, and it's still laying in the ground somewhere there in, in Jerusalem. But it was partly fulfilled in David, And because Christ rose from the dead, it will ultimately be fulfilled in David. In other words, David David won't be in the grave forever. God will not abandon him in the grave forever, even though it's been like, I don't know, 3,000 years. Someday, God will reverse the effects of death for David, and God will not abandon him. Because Jesus rose from the dead, the, the psalm applies to us as well. Not perfectly, but it is our hope that we will not be abandoned to the grave. Uh, but, but let me look at the, the parameter, the fringe around this, this verse. Um, 
And think of this as I read it in terms of the Holy Spirit being poured out in your life. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. Right? Do you see the Lord always before you? Okay, that's what it means for the Holy Spirit to be poured out in your life. You live constantly in the presence of God. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Right? Everywhere you go, every day you have, good days and bad, God is right at your side. Right? He is at your side fighting for you that you may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Skip into verse 28. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Right? It's an amazing, amazing thing. We live life daily, fully in the presence of God. That's what the resurrection means. That's what the outpouring of his spirit means. We are to live uh, with gladness of heart, with confidence that we would not be shaken because we live life fully in God's presence. Um, that's the ultimate significance of the resurrection. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.